Gary Tan, you are a legendary Silicon Valley investor, a former partner in Y Combinator, a co-founder of Initialized Capital, along with Alexis Ohanian. You're also an early investor in Coinbase, which you've called your best investment ever. We'll talk more about that. You're bullish on crypto more generally. Uh, you've had just an extraordinary life, and we're going to get to all of that in just a moment. But Gary, first, tell us a little bit about your journey. How did you get to where you are today? Well, where do, where do we start? Um, I, you know, for me, I'm a software engineer uh, to begin with, and um, I saw a documentary very early called The Machine That Changed the World uh, when I was 14 years old. And um, a lot of the things that they talked about in that documentary have basically come true, that uh, you know, we live in this age where software is eating absolutely everything in the world. And uh, now, you know, as an investor you know, running a fund with over a billion dollars under management, what I realize is this is actually a one-time shift, at least for our lifetimes. And so that's why you're seeing these, you know, decacorn companies being minted with um, far faster sort of pace than ever before. And, um, you know, being a venture capitalist for the last 10 years, we got a front row seat to seeing exactly that. And the growth of crypto to me is really about um, software eating money and money is the underpinning of society. So it's just been remarkable. And I feel like we're just, you know, even the early innings, you know, it's uh, Brian Armstrong, when they went direct listing, came on my YouTube channel, and he said, uh, we are at, you know, 1% on the progress bar, which is, uh, if that's true, that that's a pretty wild claim. <laughs> and I, you know, I think that it's probably true. Um, you know, we, we haven't really seen the full rollout of what software means in society yet. I mean, we've only had smartphones for even 10 years and uh, it's already changed so many things. Yeah. So let's zoom the camera back a little bit, particularly for people who are not in the tech space. Uh, you cite the uh, famous uh, Mark Andreessen statement about how software is eating the world. Tell us a little bit about how we got to where we are today. Obviously, the revolution that we're seeing right now uh, with cryptocurrency, uh, in some senses, is a, is a continuation of the revolution we saw beginning in the 90s with the internet. You've been present uh, for a great deal of this revolution. Tell us a little bit about what the broad narrative is when you zoom the camera out. How do you see what's happening in the valley, in technology, and how has that come to impact, as you say, money? If we want to zoom all the way out, um, what, the, what software actually is, um, is actually an infinite book. And um, there's a whole episode in this uh, 1990s documentary uh, that's dedicated to this. They, they call it, you know, my favorite episode in that, if you go back and watch it on YouTube, is um, the paperback computer. And the big idea there is that, you know, 500 years ago, illuminated manuscripts cost as much as a home, uh, you know, equivalent of hundreds of thousands of dollars. Um, they were guarded in towers by a priesthood. And uh, if you look at computers, like that's really how computers were 50 years ago, 40 years ago, 30 years ago. And um, now we are something like, you know, 40 years into an ongoing revolution, which is um, that computer being in every desk, in every home, but now in every pocket. And then now, you know, through the internet, perhaps through Starlink and things like that, actually on every inch of the planet, um, you know, instantly on tap, compute, at, you know, whenever you need it. And um, I don't think that we even have fully understood what that means for society. And uh, the reason why we get to sit here, you know, 
talking about ideas is actually um, that revolution. You know, at some point you could put pen to paper and transfer knowledge, and then we didn't have to keep, you know, learning the same thing over and over again the hard way. And so, you know, modern enlightenment society is the result of this communication technology over the course of 500 years since the Gutenberg printing press. And um, only in the past 50 years and like really in our lifetimes are we actually seeing the full sort of rollout of what that means in society. Um, and that's really, I mean, it's at once very scary, but also very, very cool. And what it took the book 500 years to create modern society. We're, you know, seeing... Uh, that next wave, like before our very eyes. Yeah, well, that is the big picture from the Middle Ages through the Enlightenment uh, to where we are today. I'm curious, you talk about your passion for technology. Uh, when did you first begin to think that maybe you might want to do something uh, other than being uh, an engineer, other than working directly in the technology itself? How did you decide to make the transition to full-time investor? Yeah, that's a really awesome question. I mean, honestly, I have to credit Stanford, honestly. Um, you know, I grew up um, the children of uh, Chinese immigrants who, you know, they struggled, honestly. And, you know, at times we were food insecure growing up. And, uh, you know, watching that documentary and then being obsessed with computers, that was like winning the lottery. I mean, I learned how to make web pages when I was 14, opened up the yellow pages and started cold calling the internet section to get my first job. And I took the, you know, earnings from that and helped my parents um, pay the down payment for their first home, which, you know, I got to live in and my parents still live in today. That's really what I want is, um, I guess it was being food insecure that made me, you know, go out and realize like I need to go and get skills that other people need. And um, technology was something that a lot of people continue to need. And then getting into Stanford and studying computer science, I ended up working with um, or, you know, being friends with uh, people who knew Peter Thiel. And so in 2003, I graduated, I went up to Microsoft and then friends of mine, um, you know, were starting a company with Peter Thiel in 2004 and they said, come have dinner with him. So I flew down from Seattle, I had dinner with him at a uh, restaurant that's now, uh, I think 5A5 Steakhouse in San Francisco. But at the time it was a uh, French restaurant that Peter had opened called Frison. Uh, it was not very good. Unfortunately, I think the restaurant closed. But about that time, he actually wrote the half a million dollar check to Facebook that made him a billionaire the first time around. And, you know, he, he was a well-known figure by then. He had sold PayPal. I'd had, I had invited him to come speak at Stanford to talk about entrepreneurship before. He said, Gary, what are you doing at Microsoft? You're wasting your time. Um, come join us. We're going to go change the world. And I uh, said, thank you very much, Mr. Thiel. Oh, I, before he said that, he also said, how much a year do you make? And I said, $70,000 a year, sir. And he said, I'll write you a personal check for that right now. Cash that check, quit your job. This is zero risk opportunity for you. And um, I said, thank you very much, Mr. Thiel, but I might get promoted next year. And I got on a plane and went back to Seattle. And of course that tr company turned out to be Palantir. And, uh, you know, which I think is around $40 billion market cap today. Don't feel too bad for me. I ended up joining as employee number 10. I designed the logo, built one of the major product teams from scratch. And that's what really taught me that um, there's something really magic about Silicon Valley. Um, and, you know, what's funny is in 2021, we talk about Silicon Valley like it's a real place, but actually it's just on the internet now. 
It's, you know, the valley is not, um, you know, a collection of small towns on the peninsula of San Francisco in, on, on the Bay Area. It's actually, uh, you know, the internet at this point. It's that, that spirit is everywhere in the world now. And that's a very good thing, I'd say. Um, but being able to see, uh, you know, what at the time for me, it seemed like outrageous amounts of money put towards bringing together teams of builders. So software engineers, designers, product people, like those were really the people who were the essential set of people to create something from scratch. And, uh, you know, I, I think as an engineer and as someone who did not come from wealth, I had no conception that there was this much money sitting in bank accounts across the world. And of course, now fast forward to today, we live in a world where capital is absolutely fungible and, and, you know, great abundance and what is rare and what I want desperately to have happen, not just 10 or a hundred X more, but a thousand, like 10,000 X more is for very, very smart people to be sort of unshackled from systems that, you know, basically give them BS jobs. Yeah. Like the, the amount of like incredible brain power that is wasted in the world is somewhat outrageous if you think about it. And, um, and I want them to be, you know, driven to create new organizations, new products, new services that go out and actually solve the very many deeply rooted issues in our society. And, you know, I think that now's the time to do that. You know, if you, if you take the zoom out picture on software rewriting all of society, um, well, technology is the pen and the pen is available and I want that pen to be available. And, um, so it's been a really interesting journey coming from software engineering and building and building those teams for people like Peter Thiel to then, um, you know, applying to Y Combinator, getting in, you know, meeting Paul Graham. And, uh, you know, we sold that company to Twitter's company blog platform called Posterous. And, uh, you know, what's funny is I routinely talk about the mistakes I made. You know, we had a shot at building a billion dollar company and we missed. And, um, I found myself in 2011 working at Y Combinator, which today is sort of synonymous with startups. But back then the whole concept was very wonky and not something that people really thought would work. You know, really you could give people $17,000 and, you know, a summer stipend and have them go on to create Decacorns. But, you know, Airbnb and Dropbox were sort of the first, um, the first to come out of, a three-month accelerator program. And now they've created more than a few hundred billion dollars worth of startups. Um, you know, I think RYC startup was uh, the, the one of the winners in the least successful YC batch ever of summer 2008. But uh, I blame Lehman dying for that. Like, basically, nobody was able to raise money. And that was sort of um, the days of Sequoia Capital releasing that memo saying RIP good times. Um, but of course, the batch right after that in uh, winter of uh, 2009, there came out Airbnb north of $100 billion, you know, right in the middle of um, the YC batch where Paul Graham said, you might not want to come to YC this year. There's There might not be any investors for you, period. Um, and so I don't know, I, you know, I think that right now people are very afraid of what's happening in valuations and monetary expansion. Um, but I feel very confident about, you know, 
the Airbnb story is sort of the story that will recur, um, you know, whether times are good or times are bad in the macro environment. Um, the great story of, you know, every person who wants to pick up a pen, you know, they get to write a page in uh, the future of humanity through software. You know, you mentioned uh, this fear of monetary expansion. This is something that's on uh, many investors' minds, people who are following the macro space. Uh, and that brings us right to cryptocurrency, the digital asset revolution. You've been so good at zooming the camera out and telling us the 50,000 foot lay of the land uh, with technology. How do you think about what cryptocurrency is for people who may not really understand uh, just how pervasive this revolution is becoming? The, the pattern that we're sort of used to now, um, especially in tech, is that what is sort of the um, fringe thing that nobody thinks is going to work um, you know, that software engineers want to build and work on, um, as long as they actually continue to build things people want, um, they basically become inevitable. So for me, um, you know, working for Peter Thiel, I worked on hedge fund software at the time. They had me read, you know, books like The Dollar Crisis. So it was sort of in the back of my mind, oh, hey, like something happened, you know, WTF happened in 1971.com, like you just flip through those graphs and something did happen very fundamentally in society. I think I was already primed from sort of a macroeconomic standpoint to know that something strange was happening in society. Um, and, you know, there's no mistake that people like Brian Armstrong, he was a, a anti-fraud engineer working for Airbnb. And, um, you know, in the back of his head, uh, you know, he read the Satoshi Nakamoto white paper, but then at the same time, he was working at, you know, one of the defining companies creating a new type of vertical marketplace for um, all of housing, right? Like, you know, a marketplace for space, um, you know, and Airbnb was able to create something that, um, you know, slept uh, more beds in any given night than Marriott and Marriott took maybe 50 years to do it. Like Airbnb did it in, you know, five or something like that. Um, and so, you know, he was working in a very ripe area, seeing it for himself that, um, these new marketplaces were being developed. And then at the same time, he saw the regulatory hurdles, the difficulty in even just getting a bank account. I mean, you see it today with, um, you know, Stripe was another company that, came out of the Y Combinator world and um, Stripe today, you know, also worth north of $100 billion, um, really on the same trend. It's like that software is bringing down the barriers, um, making things that are, that, you know, should happen, they, they can happen far faster. And so I think what Brian saw and what he showed me was, um, really that society needs a store of value. And, uh, you know, I think the store of value thing really was not something I anticipated. Um, if you told me when I met Brian Armstrong and Fund and Coinbase that um, Bitcoin would be worth, you know, $45,000, I would say you're mad. Um, you know, I really didn't believe that. Um, but I also very much underestimated uh, money printing <laughs> and I underestimated how powerful, you know, really these ideas could be. And so I think there are three main shifts that are happening in crypto. The first one being store of value, um, just the simple idea that, hey, if we're making, you know, if the value of a dollar is changing, it is actually very useful for human beings to have something that is not, you know, shifting in that way. 
Um, and then the thing that I have always been much more interested in is sort of happening before our eyes now around um, DeFi. So being able to write software that um, brings the cost of basically the transactions down, um, you know, being able to lend and borrow, being able to create any type of financial instrument. Um, you know, one good example would be, you know, I think Robinhood, if it were actually on a blockchain that also was scalable, which is a big if, um, you know, the things that happened with GameStop where um, the settlement houses really required that, uh, required mass cash and cash infusion, things like that just wouldn't happen because um, they would happen in a decentralized manner. And so I think those things seem very inevitable to me, you know, sort of a decentralization of um, how money is really exchanged, right? Um, and then the next step after that, that I think hasn't happened yet, but I think could happen is um, a rewriting of the corporation. Um, and, you know, at the same time, this is a little bit of a fever dream for software engineers. You know, software engineers hate management and they hate uh, having to build human organizations. And the fever dream of every software engineer founder is that you could create um, a large distributed organization that is self-managing in a decentralized fashion using software with like, you know, core incentives being codified into a smart contract. Um, it remains to be seen, you know, having now worked with hundreds of startup teams, um, you know, having to manage and build teams is uh, probably not something that can completely be, uh, you know, designed as a smart contract, but we can try. And uh, I'm very interested to see what's going to happen with um, decentralized autonomous organizations. Like, I think that it's possible. And, um, you know, you see the shades of it in things like Reddit, you see the shades of it in social media. Um, you know, there, there is space for new types of organizations that can arise that um, are, you know, highly decentralized. And I think that that's actually more needed now than ever in the face of um, the rise of big tech, right? Um, I think it was Teal actually who says that, uh, what did he say? I guess AI is uh, is sort of totalitarian, is it? <laughs> Which it is, it's like sort of, you know, whoever has access to the data and has proprietary access to data really, like they collect, the, you know, it really sort of collects in the hands of the few. Whoever controls the algorithm controls so much. And we certainly live in that society today. Um, you know, my, one of my favorite thinkers on the internet is Venkatesh Rao. And he talks about how society has sort of bifurcated into, um, you know, workers who are above the API and workers below the API. And uh, God help you if you're below the API, right? And um, I think that that's quite scary. And then the, the good news is that decentralization is sort of the thing that fights against that. You know, decentralization gives you, the user, the power over your own data. You know, it also gives the individual, you know, sovereignty over the value that they create, you know, rather than being able to, rather than having your, the value that you work so hard to create be debased and devalued so easily by large centralized organizations like governments, um, it actually gives you uh, a way to opt out, right? To have a different system and a system that's chosen by many, many people. So I'm super excited about, you know, 
the, that, that is sort of maybe the defining war of the 21st century, I would say, is like, you know, will, will power to the people and decentralization win or will, you know, big tech win? And uh, I'm, you know, my book certainly is that I want to find new teams. You know, I'm not pro big tech, but I am pro little tech. You know, I want small teams, decentralized teams, um, teams that basically give people alternatives and uh, through the marketplace, create something better, faster, cheaper. Gary, that's really such an extraordinary vision, a big picture view of how the world is about to get rewritten. You talk about some of the most fundamental aspects of society, the store of value, the decentralization of finance, perhaps even the decentralization uh, of the corporation itself uh, via things like DAOs. We're filming, I should say, here on uh, Thursday afternoon, uh, just after the concluding day of the SALT conference. This is the, the Skybridge Alternative Asset Conference, uh, where it's effectively event for uh, hedge fund managers, large funds, people in the traditional finance space. And I have to say, roughly 50 to 70% of the content there was about the crypto space. Uh, I ran into some people who I knew had been a bit skeptical of cryptocurrency and said, boy, this may be something that's bigger than I thought. This is an enormous vision. How do you begin to see uh, some of these changes, uh, these fundamental social, cultural, economic changes in society beginning to play out? Well, I only have um, my little pinprick of a perspective <laughs> on the greater whole. So I can only speak to that, really. I mean, and it is still sort of the view of the software engineer making his way as now a venture capitalist. But I also can say that, you know, my view is also sort of filtered through the, the lens of a community. If you go to good software engineers, um, so good software engineers can recognize other good software engineers based on the output of their work. And, um, and so that's the lens that we take. Um, you know, I, I totally understand and I share skepticism uh, with you know, the financial audience as well around cryptocurrency simply because there are so many scams. There are just so many things that are never going to work. And they are, and you look down at the valuations and you're just sort of astonished and it makes no sense to you. Um, I apologize in advance for potentially uh, offending people, but you know, Dogecoin is a good example of that, right? Um, I do not understand how that valuation is what it is. On the other hand, I do understand that um, you know, there's a cult-like aspect to every cryptocurrency. And so, you know, I've said relatively controversial things, for instance, about Bitcoin, and I was pilloried by the community for it, right? And so, you know, it's very dangerous to say these things, but I don't know, this is just like my perspective. At the end of the day, what I believe is um, really, really great software engineers are sort of the people who hold the keys to, you know, the next generation of, you know, the next generation of all technology. And then how you can look at crypto is actually from a lens of that. Solana, for instance, uh, you know, people look at that rise and a lot of people might say, well, I don't understand. Why did Solana start, you know, going up 5x in the past month or so? And um, for us, uh, we actually just started seeing really, really smart Ethereum developers switch to Solana because it was faster and they didn't want to pay for gas. And so, you know, one of the big ideas that I think is deeply embedded in crypto is this idea of a shelling point. Um, you know, where without coordination, 
if you wanted to meet in uh, New York City, for instance, you know, where would you say you wanted to meet, you know, if you had no ability to communicate with other people? And, uh, you know, to a T, most people, I think, would say, you know, New Year's Eve, uh, stroke of midnight at, you know, Grand Central Station under the clock, right? Um, and that's a really wild way to look at how crypto will work. And so those are sort of the two things that we look for when we invest in crypto. One is what's a shelling point? Could this be a shelling point? You know, without any coordination, will people just arrive on it? Um, and then on the flip side, are there good software engineers associated? Like, are they actually going to ship or are they sort of spouting nonsensical buzzwords? Um, and I don't know, those are the only two divining rods that I would have and that I would recommend for people who uh, are coming into crypto at the end of the day. And it's like fun people who are actually capable of shipping and who can, you know, attract great engineers. Um, because I actually think that that might be more so the defining um, limiting reagent to uh, society's progress today. Um, I think that Google and Apple and uh, Facebook and a great many big tech companies treat engineers really as a, um, a commodity to sort of placate and put in uh, basically adult, <laughs> they're like adult dormitories, basically. Um, and, you know, they treat engineers as moat because that's, that is what they are, right? The only way that uh, these trillion dollar companies get disrupted is by one of those engineers um, starting an alternative company that then captures market share and displaces them. So, you know, best to keep them fat and happy and not working on things that really matter, actually. But that's also the same thing that you can use to look at. Um, I mean, frankly, that's what we use also for uh, evaluating very, very early stage startups. So, you know, we are the earliest investors in Coinbase and Bison Trails and TRM Labs and a number of companies that are turning out to be, you know, real just stalwarts of crypto. But, um, you know, we're generalists, right? The other companies that we funded very, very early when they were just a few people starting, you know, we were the earliest investor in uh, in Instacart, in Open Door, um, in real estate, in Flexport, in logistics. So, you know, the cool thing is um, this lens, especially around software engineers, can be used for uh, anything that is a technology company, not just crypto. Uh, but we do love crypto a lot simply because it's the revolution that's unfolding right before us. You know, we've talked a lot about the macro, the big picture view of what's happening. Let's talk a little bit about the micro. Tell us about your investment uh, in Coinbase, your relationship with Brian Armstrong, and how you came uh, to be involved in that organization. Well, Brian started off as a software engineer, um, like the rest of us. And, um, you know, I think Y Combinator turned out to be a shelling point for software engineers who wanted to start companies. That was definitely true for me. Um, and so... I was working at YC. Um, I met Paul Graham and, uh, you know, and Jessica Livingston, and I was burnt out from my startup in 2011. And they said, well, why don't you come on and just help people design their homepages and chill out for a bit? And then I just loved working with startups so much, they ended up making me an investing partner, which is not what I expected at all. But, um, you know, just six, uh, about a year after I started working at YC, I got a cold email from Brian Armstrong and he said, you know, here's 0.05 Bitcoin, try out my um, new service. And so, you know, he was just exploring the space himself. He said, 
you know, I, I think Bitcoin is really big, but running your own node in your own wallet on a computer is a lot of work. And so um, he said, how do I make this easier? You know, if I work backwards from a world in which Bitcoin is absolutely everywhere, what are the fundamental building blocks to making that happen? And then he looked around and said, oh, shoot, this doesn't exist yet. And uh, so he literally said, oh, well, if if someone's going to be it, you know, literally the cloud hosted wallet, sort of like GitHub for Git, um, but for the Bitcoin client, it might as well be me. And so I love that story simply because it's so bottom up. Like he wasn't running around trying to get ahead of, you know, a buzzword or anything like that. It was just purely, what do I need as a user? What do my friends need? Let me build that thing and then let me get users. Um, so it was really as simple as that for, um, <laughs> for Brian that uh, he was in the right place, right time. And then Coinbase became the shelling point for um, people who wanted to actually bring about the, the you know, this revolution. And it was like sort of the necessary part, you know. And I was sort of primed to re be really into it because I actually had to go and buy Bitcoin on Mt. Gox and it was a disaster. <laughs> and I was like, this is scammy as heck. There's no way that normal people are ever going to do it. Um, and here was this clean, well-lit place that um, I think continues to this day. You know, um, I've been trying to buy, you know, back when I was accumulating Solana, when I first started seeing software engineers switch over to it, um, you know, the 2021 version of it was like wiring $10,000 to FTX.us and wiring $10,000 to Binance uh, just to do my initial buys and um, realizing oh, wow, I didn't get my wire on FTX for more than a month. And it took five um, or three or four, uh, you know, ticket requests to get that. And then Binance, I didn't get for another, like it took like five or six months actually. And so I was like blown away that like, this is sort of like the nature of the fiat to crypto rail in like 2021, you know, this, and this is with like Coinbase is already, you know, $60 billion company, right? Like, you know, come on guys, like, being able to rectify and make sure that wires go in the right place within 48 hours should be table stakes for these companies. But, you know, I, it's still, you know, this is why we truly are still 1% progress bar, like basic errors in uh, user experience. You know, the things that you expect are just not working yet. And that's why Coinbase, I think, is still far ahead of everyone else. So as you start to look ahead, uh, perhaps maybe in the nearer term, a year, two years, three years, how do you see this space beginning to evolve? What are the challenges that you see being solved? And how is that user experience going to improve in your view? Well, I think one of the things I'm looking with bated breath at is, you know, what's going to happen with Ethereum, right? The gas prices are outrageous, especially when really, you know, awesome NFTs are being minted. Um, but, you know, just generally, um, but I do think ETH 2.0, it's going to be huge because um, moving from proof of work to proof of stake, um, seemingly inevitable and very good for the environment, you know, bringing the, um, uh, you know, what was it? I think Bitcoin costs about the same energy budget of, uh, you know, Switzerland or something like that, I read. And, um, you know, that's the nature of proof of work. Um, I think that it's really powerful and totally what a software engineer would want to make things better, faster, cheaper, and far more efficient, um, to have proof of stake and bring that energy requirement down by 99%. But I also think that we are, you know, still in the very, very early innings. You know, I think it's, you know, 
looking at marketplaces and the user side of um, you know cryptocurrencies being useful there. You know, I, I actually don't think that very much has changed since uh, even 2017. Right. The, you know, the wallet is still a problem. Self-custody is still a problem. The on-ramps are still a problem. Um, so I'm a little bit frustrated, but, you know, it'll, it'll get solved sooner or later, I hope. How do you think about the use case for Ethereum? How do you think about what some of the potential is uh, for smart contracts to revolutionize uh, not just uh, aspects of financial services as in DeFi, uh, but also commerce more generally? Do you see something uh, that's a killer app coming down the road, or do you think that this is going to be more of a slower transition? It seems like it will be slower. I'd like it to be faster. <laughs> but, you know, we're sort of still in the middle of, you know, frankly, the the first salvo of regulatory, I think, you know, crypto has survived. And I'm, you know, deeply worried about what's going to happen, especially as, um, you know, cryptocurrency is going to be far more politicized as we go into the future, right? You know, I think that Bology is right. You know, because of the decentralized nature and decentralizing nature of cryptocurrency, it has many, many enemies from people who want uh, continued centralized control, especially from the state. And um, I'm sort of worried about it. On the other hand, um, what I realize is this will be a fantastic test of, at least in the United States, of um, basically the primacy of our own rule of law, of our own democracy. And, uh, you know, the heartening aspect to it is that, yeah, there are 30 million or so people who, you know, hold cryptocurrency and are uh, to some extent crypto converted. And so when you have 10% of a nation's populace um, who are engaged and going to write letters to and call uh, the senators and, you know, Congress people um, who are going to make a fuss and who are going to vote with their feet, you know, 10% is a large margin that will dis determine elections. So, you know, I actually think that we as crypto converted need to be a lot more politically active and politically aware. Um, and, you know, what happened with the infrastructure bill a couple months ago, I think we are going to have to be much more engaged and um, just prepared that, you know, maybe we might feel safe right now, but it's just the first round and um, it's going to come through actual civic engagement you know, that, that is how we sort of prevent, um, you know, what is very important and what is still sort of, you know, built in the United States, you know, we're going to need to protect it because <laughs> um, just as easily, you know, a lot of this innovation and a lot of um, the things that we hope to have sort of working here in the United States, it could be stamped out very easily, actually. Um, so, I you know, I have... I am both hopeful and very anxious about the coming decade for crypto. Yeah, you know, you raised so many important points there uh, about the role of the state, the role of the regulatory infrastructure. There was this line of thinking that many people uh, on the traditional finance side had uh, that went something like this, not saying we agree with it or disagree with it, but the line of thinking was basically, look, as long as cryptocurrency uh, was something that was in the hundreds of billions of dollars uh, as a total market cap asset class, uh, regulators would effectively exhibit forbearance. It wasn't large enough for them to care about. I believe Ray Dalio, 
yesterday uh, out of the SALT conference made some remarks that said uh, words to the effect that, you know, if Bitcoin becomes a success, regulators are going to kill it. What does that, how does that balance get struck in your view? How do we manage to have um, the role of regulators satisfied? Um, you know, I think they, they would probably talk about things like uh, orderly capital markets. Uh, they would say protection for investors, particularly retail investors, uh, and also the question of the, the control of the money supply uh, and its relation to regulating the U.S. economy. These are all very big questions. How do you see that world shaking out? How can these two sort of very divergent schools of thought, of thinking, of seeing the world coexist. The Bitcoin thing is very interesting because I don't really know what's going to happen with sort of like Bitcoin versus the US dollar because I think dollar hegemony is still, if you're an American, that's actually generally a very, very good thing, um, except for the debasement, right? <laughs> and we don't, we're not such a big fan of that. And so I don't know. <laughs> the reality is like, I have no idea what's going to happen um, on sort of, the pure store of value side. And then for my worldview, I am, I do think that the other things are very much worth protecting. Um, this is why it was so important to me that um, the, the broader protection amendment was uh, a far better one to actually pass, right? There were two amendments, one that only applied to Bitcoin, another one that was more broadly applicable to, you know, um, validators and proof of stake and sort of Ethereum and all of the other cryptocurrencies as well. And um, I think there are just so many battles to be fought, fought. You know, I think Bitcoin versus USD is one. And uh, I don't really have an opinion yet about, you know, uh, you know I'm an American. <laughs> you know, I, I want that to continue to happen because I want a strong America personally. Um, at the same time, I sort of see these, the, the ongoing next step for, frankly, how marketplaces could be created. You know, it's no mistake that Brian Armstrong worked at Airbnb. You know, I think that one of the biggest opportunities over the next 10 or 20 years is actually us funding software marketplaces and startups that are crypto native. And, you know, I fully expect in the next 10 or 20 years, um, we might, they might all become crypto um, as the technologies, as the technology tax comes down and as the UI tax comes down, um, you know, it'll just be sort of inevitable that people will want to use uh, the state of the art that is fully decentralized, that gives users power. And um, I want that to be very much a, an American thing as well. And I think that if we allow, you know, short-term thinking to sort of take hold, it means we're going to stamp that out. And it's not going to be an American thing at all. Like, you know, literally the software engineers and the people who create the future will leave the United States. So it'll be, you know, for 50 years, we had an incredible brain drain of talent from the rest of the world into the United States. And if we declare war on cryptocurrency and this type of technology, then we're going to see, you know, the crumbling of the American state um, because, frankly, you know, all of the smart people who could create the future 
they just won't do it here anymore. Yeah, this is very much a, a U.S. global competitiveness issue. And I, I think that there are probably people uh, of goodwill on both sides of the aisle who are sympathetic to that argument, who see the risks uh, in the U.S. falling behind in this critical technology. And I hope that we're going to get the regulation uh, and the legislation that we need to continue to keep the revolution going here uh, in the U.S., here in the Silicon, in, in Silicon Valley, uh, and really, uh, frankly, hopefully across the entire country. Agreed. Yeah. One other question that's come up recently is the issue of income inequality. Uh, it's a very hot topic now in some quarters. How do you think about income inequality risks that are being created by crypto, at least in the view uh, of certain uh, politicians from some quarters? You know, cryptocurrency, um, I mean, honestly, like capital, it's amoral, right? It's not immoral and it's not moral. It's just a technology, right? And it takes people to make decisions um, to sort of have an outcome play out one way or another. The really interesting thing about decentralization though, is that um, the more democratizing a given distribution strategy for a token or an NFT is, the more successful it is. And so that's another aspect for why um, crypto and decentralized technology is fundamentally more democratic actually. Um, and, and really it comes from uh, a more fair distribution. So I think there's something inherent to crypto that um, is sort of anti-inequality in a lot of ways. You know, I think the, the necessary aspect to that is that new things need to still, you know, keep happening, right? If it really is only, you know, and maybe this is why I'm less of a Bitcoin maximalist. Like, I, I do believe that, you know, my worldview is almost entirely about, you know, new people who are early in their careers building new software to solve problems that are better, faster, cheaper, or you're in a way that's better, faster, cheaper, and solve problems that, you know, are overlooked by like the previous generation. And, um, you know, maximalism, it does not work for me because what a maximalist says is this is the last one that everyone, anyone will ever have. And, oh, by the way, I own 1% of it. And so, yeah, I'm rich forever. And I don't think anyone deserves to be rich forever. <laughs> like, I think that you know, within a lifetime, people who um, create things of great value for others, you know, a, a fair system in this in this world to me, um, and maybe this is more of a classic liberal view, a fair system is one in which someone can create something of great value and enjoy the fruit of that labor. And then someone else who, you know, might have nothing, you know, next year, the next decade, you know, tomorrow could create something that knocks that out and uh, takes that market over and uh, the end winner will be the consumer, the customer and the rest of society. And that's a functioning capitalist society as far as I'm concerned. Nobody deserves to be rich forever. Gary, I know you're going to light up the comments with that one. Well, I mean, that's just what I believe, right? And that's, and that's, I put my money where I'm at, my mouth is, right? Like we are looking for new engineers, new designers, new product people who, um, can create something of great value. And it's happened so many times um, in our direct experience that, you know, I, I think the venture capital growing from, you know, a sort of cottage $30 billion a year industry to uh, a trillion dollars, you know, I think a trillion dollars a year is basically guaranteed at this point. And, you know, I think a larger and larger percentage of that trillion dollars in 10 years will be crypto driven. And all of that is a good thing um, because it just pushes forward society. And uh, I deeply believe in 
the power of technology to tra you know, transform society. And that's like sort of the, the arrow of history. And I think that we're on the right side. Gary, for people who have just heard this conversation and had their minds kind of blown, particularly for people uh, who may be on the traditional investment side, what would you recommend uh, people do to find out more about this space, to think more deeply about some of the issues that you've touched on here today? Oh, gosh. I mean, some of my favorite thinkers, you know, Balaji Srinivasan, you kind of have to, but I'm sure, you know, that's preaching the choir <laughs> for a Balaji's lot of people. Been on, uh, Real Vision um, before, and he's always fantastic. Oh, he's incredible. I'm trying to do a lot more on my YouTube channel. Um, what's funny is like to understand software engineers better, I would go to news.ycombinator.com. So this is a website that frankly introduced me to Paul Graham's essays and uh, Hacker News. It's called Hacker News. It's actually built for software engineers um, and particularly, at least in the early days, about people who wanted to start companies. And um, that's sort of the front page of uh, you know, nerdy technology hackerdom in a way. Um, and so I think Hacker News is almost must read for anyone who wants to immerse themselves in the culture of uh, building. Honestly, you know, the other person who I really look up to and admire, and he has been a very, very valuable um, resource to me is Naval Ravikant. I mean, it's I mean, I feel like that's canon at this point, you know, it's just so fundamental. Um, he's the one who sort of highlighted Ethereum to me back in the day. And um, I think that, you know, there are just a few people who are shelling points for, um, you know, what is the future of technology? He's definitely one of them. Yeah. As we come to the final minutes uh, here in this conversation, Gary, give us some final thoughts, key takeaways from our audience who may have been hearing about these issues in this context for the very first time. I think the number one thing that you know powers my whole life and everything that's worked for me thus far is um, you know it's never been more important um, for people to be builders, and so for us as a society to recognize builders, to recognize the people who sit in front of the IDE and write the code or sit in front of Figma and create the design or for the product manager who sits down with real users, interviews them and translates that into feature lists. I mean, um, and there an astonishing amount of change can happen when those three people sit down in a room and they don't have to worry about money right? Like their basic needs are met, you know, literally Y Combinator created hundreds of billions of dollars worth of startups. I funded about a hundred billion dollars worth of startups in this way. Um, and they don't take a lot of money. I mean, it really, you know, we're in a world absolutely awash with capital and, um, and that, and I was, a, you know, starting my career, like I was a builder and it was astonishing to me to what degree that was true, like 0% interest rate, negative interest rates. What does that matter? What does that mean? Um, and I think that we are incredibly limited. We are incredibly just held back by credentialism even. I mean, we are the, I, I think Harvard and Stanford and MIT and Every company, every great college out there should be graduating 10 times or 100 times as many people. Like in a world of infinite capital, we need way more people who are, you know, able to pick up a pen and start writing the next page of society, the next page of history through technology. I think that that's what's going to happen. And, you know, I hope to fund it. A wider range of people contributing and the world belongs to builders. I can't think of a better place to end this conversation. Gary, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you so much for having me. Thanks for watching, everybody.
Hey there, since you got to the end, I'm guessing you liked the video. And that's probably because we don't just turn on a camera and film, we work really hard on getting the narrative flow just right. And that's why many finance companies are actually now hiring Real Vision to make videos for them. One of our recent client videos just hit 100,000 organic views on YouTube, and there were no kittens in sight. So if you want to find out how Real Vision can make a video for your company, just email us at customvideo at realvision.com.